Hear the word of the Lord this morning from the book of 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're now living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you would avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all of those who commit such sins. And as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject the human being, but God himself, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind to your own business, work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anyone. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. And your word gives us truths that sometimes can be hard, truths that sometimes we don't want to accept. But God, I pray that you give us a humble heart this morning, and as we approach your word and your truths, that you would soften our heart to them, and that through your spirit, you would change us to conform to you and to live a life that pleases you, and that we would do this more and more. And all this we pray in the name of the risen Lord, the name of Jesus, amen. A few weeks ago, Cassie's parents had come up on a Saturday afternoon so that we could spend some time together. It was a wonderful, beautiful evening, and they brought with them uh, their bows and arrows. And so we spent part of the evening doing some target practicing. And um, I will say, uh, for my first time ever shooting a compound bow, I didn't do too bad, right? Someone said they were surprised. Um, but nevertheless, um, we did this, um, and when they left, they actually left all of their stuff at our house. And so this is what Cassie and I have been doing in our free time in the evenings, is shooting uh, targets in the backyard. I'm learning this for the first time. Cassie uh, used to be an expert. She actually used to compete in this. So she's relearning it. I'm learning it for the first time. But we've really enjoyed this. And really, to be honest, I didn't know how, much, how many intricacies there were to this. It, really, this is uh, an art in precision and consistency. And what I've learned about archery in the last few weeks it's really actually taught me a lot about our text this morning. It's made it come to life and make a lot more sense. See, last week we started looking at these two books, uh, First and Second Thessalonians. And Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, and uh, he's writing to them. He, it's a church that he had planted as a part of his missionary journey. And 
as he, he had to leave town in a hurry, matter of fact, because of the persecution that was happening there. And so he writes this letter while he's in Athens to kind of encourage them and to remind them of their faith. And even amidst the persecution and hostility that these Christians face from their neighbors, they continue to have faith and, and love and continue to have fo- faith, or sorry, hope. Matter of fact, Paul points out that their example had become well known to all of the surrounding churches. Indeed, they were walking in a way so as to please God. And Paul recognizes that these Christians have been diligent to work on their faith, labor in love, and remain steadfast in hope. And up to this point in the letter, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul has been encouraging the Christians, reminding them of the gospel, reminding them who they are in Christ, and and telling them, although you are facing persecution, so did Jesus, and so continue in it. But the second half, chapter 4, marks a transition in the letter because the rest of the letter, chapters 4 and 5, he's going to begin to exhort or to teach the Christians, to address them directly, urging them to think and to behave according to the gospel to which they had received. And so he opens up this instruction saying, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you're now living Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul gives them this instruction to continue in their faith. But it's not a new instruction as if they've never received it before. It's only a reminder. Paul recognizes that since this church is facing persecution because of their faith, they need a reminder Paul's concern and the reason why he writes this letter stems from the very real possibility that due to the kind of sufferings that they're having to face for the sake of the gospel, that these believers could potentially succumb to the pressures and return to their old way of life. And although the Thessalonians were already walking in a way that pleases God, Paul's aware that before long, unless there's some kind of intervention, some rallying of the troops of sorts that these Christians could easily abandon their faith and pick up their old way of life where they left it off. And so Paul says, I ask you and I urge you. He's basically repeating himself here to emphasize the importance of this teaching and exhortation that he's giving. It's an earnest and insincere plea to be faithful and to grow in the Christian faith and in its teachings. Now, the New International Version that we're reading from this morning It's actually a little weak in its translation. It says, we instructed you how to live in in order to please God. The original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, it's much stronger. It has a much stronger tone to it. And so perhaps a better translation is this. We instructed you about how you must. See, the must there, it's an obligation that we have. But also the NIV fails to pick up on the progression We instructed you about how you must go on walking and pleasing God. This idea of walking and pleasing God is progressive. It suggests that the Christian life is one marked by progress and spiritual growth. It's never an arrival as if I've gotten there and I'm done and I'm finished, but rather that they would abound in it more and more in the way that they live for the Lord, that they would continue in it, that they would excel in it more and more. And Paul says to the church, you've been doing great, 
You've been walking in a way that honors God, living a life that pleases Him. But He says, continue in it. Do it more and more. It's kind of like my archery skills. Cassie's dad, Richard, taught me and showed me what I needed to do in order to shoot a bow and arrow. But then he left all the equipment at the house. He gave me the instruction, but he left everything there and said, okay, you've done great up to this point, but continue to work at it so that you can get better. And we understand this concept, right? Because we've all heard the phrasing, you can complete it for me, right? Practice makes, practice makes perfect. That's exactly right. And really, we could apply that principle to any area of our life that we want to get better at, right? We could do it to archery or any sport, any crafting or or cooking skill. It even applies to areas of our life like being a better parent or a better spouse. But Paul says the same is true of our Christian faith. It needs work. We've not arrived yet. We're on a journey of living a life to please God where every area of our life Every area of our life is brought under the rule and the reign of Christ. It's like there's a target that we're shooting for, a bullseye that we need to practice aiming at. And unless every thought and action and word and deed and area of your life is completely and wholly surrendered to God, this instruction and exhortation is for you. It's definitely for me. See, faithfulness is not a one-time action Faithfulness assumes an ongoing, a continual, a more and more action. Paul, in our text this morning, addresses two very big issues. Now, as Christians, every area of our life, our finances, our marriage, our parenting, our our work life, our social life, every area of our life needs to be brought under the rule and reign of Christ. But Paul addresses two pretty big issues this morning. And so we're going to look specifically at these two. One has to do with sexual purity and the other has to do with love and service. I think the 21st century church needs reminder of these things just as the Thessalonican church did. Paul goes on to say, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. We'll talk about that word in just a moment. That you should avoid, and this means to abstain entirely from, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all of those who commit such sins. And as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God himself, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Wow, that's a pretty powerful warning for a very powerful temptation. Paul starts this whole teaching, ethical teaching on sexual purity with this. It is God's will for you to be sanctified. Now, we said we are going to talk about that word. That idea of being sanctified means to be made holy holy, to be made holy. And every time the Bible uses this phrase, it always starts with this understanding that God himself is holy. You've probably heard that word, right? Definitely we call the holy Bible, or, or in our songs we sing sometimes God is holy. The Bible actually calls Christians saints or holy ones. 
This is not a status that you gain after you die, anything. No, no, every Christian is a saint. They're a holy one. And that word means to be set apart, to be consecrated, to be entirely other and different. And so when the Bible starts with this understanding that God is holy, it means that he's set apart. He's entirely different and and upright and pure, above and beyond us in every way. But when the Bible says that we're holy, that that God's will is that we would be sanctified, It's referring to that we belong to God, and we've also been set apart for a purpose. And the purpose is not to live for ourselves, but rather to live for God. It's not an arrival. It's a journey and a process. It's something that you excel in more and more. But you've been set apart not to live for yourself, but to live for God. You are holy in this regard. You belong to God and you belong to him. And because of that, your life should reflect one where you live for him and not for yourself. And because Paul starts here, because Paul gives this commandment starting here, we understand that this commandment is rooted in the fact that we've been called to live a certain way, to live a holy life, not the way we want to live with all of our lusts and passions, but rather the way God designed and created us to live. Now, this teaching was actually very foreign to the city of Thessalonica. Really, it was foreign to all the ancient Greco-Roman world because in those days, sexual morality was very lenient and lax. It was common for married men to pick up additional women at their own discretion for their own pleasures, and then the wife would stay at home to take care of the household and, and to raise and provide legitimate children. And that doesn't even speak to the cultic religions of the day, which encouraged engaging in something called temple prostitution as a part of their worship services. And this kind of relaxed mentality towards sexual purity is still true today. See, people argue that sexual behavior is a private matter and that it cannot be restricted by any kind of standard other than an individual's own desires and that of their partner. The world around us is saying, why not if it makes me happy? But Paul begins with this idea that we belong to God, that as Christ followers, anyone who's accepted this gospel, we belong to God and we were created and redeemed to live for a purpose that we shouldn't just give in to every passion and desire and lust. Rather, we should learn to control our own body in a way that's holy and honorable See, the consistent, the consistent biblical teaching on sex is that it is good when it's practiced within the context of a committed covenantal relationship. In other words, within marriage between one man and one woman. And sexual immorality is consistently defined as any kind of sexual activity before or outside of marriage, including premarital sex and extramarital sex and homosexual activity. That's the consistent biblical definition. And Jesus, he actually takes this a step further. In the Gospels, he says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with, him, with her in his heart. See, it's not just the action, the doing it. It's also the stare and, and the movie that plays in your mind, the lust. And I recognize this is not a popular idea. But this is what God has called his people to And if you're a disciple of Christ, someone who's given their life to love and to live for Jesus, it means that you take with you not just the teachings that are favorable to everyone, but you take every teaching as truth and something you strive to live for. Now, it doesn't mean that any of us are free of struggle 
or that honest people within the church won't deal with these kinds of temptations. These temptations are powerful. They're very real. That's why Paul writes this and reminds Christians about this area that they need to continue to work on it more and more. He recognizes all of the pressures all around them, that a life of sexual purity was not popular in their culture, but they weren't living for the culture. They're living and have been set apart to please God. See, this temptation in our world is real today. The pressures to just abandon this kind of teaching and also to abandon this high standard, it is knocking right at the door. First, to abandon the teaching because it's been labeled as restrictive and, and hateful, but then to abandon the standard in our lives because it's not realistic or it's too high of a standard and the temptations are too strong. But Christ has redeemed us not to give in to our lust and passions and desires, but rather to devote our lives to glorifying Him. And so if this is something that you're struggling with in your own life, I want to encourage you, just as Paul does the church, continue to fight the good fight, flee sexual immorality, continue to excel in this more and more of getting control of your body. And know there is grace in this area, just as there is in every area of life. These temptations are real, and it's not an easy fight to face. And so I want to encourage you to find other God-fearing and reliable men and women of God who can hold you accountable, who can show you and extend grace to you, but also who can remind you to keep fighting for purity, to have control of your eyes, of your thoughts, of your actions. It's important that we redirect our focus, that we focus on God and His truths, that you look to that target, God's perfect law, and that you aim for that over and over again. That you begin to deal with your heart, that you lean on God's Spirit, which He has given you for the very purpose of helping you fight these temptations. And know this too, that Christ has died to redeem us. That even when we fail and are left broken in this area of our life, Christ is making us whole and new again. These things no longer define who we are. We now have worth and value and meaning, but more importantly, purpose in life. And no matter where you've been or, or, or what you've done, the story's not over. It's one of progress, and Christ is still writing your story for you. See, faithfulness to our calling, faithfulness to the gospel means resisting temptation, every temptation of our life, including striving for sexual purity. It may not be popular, it definitely isn't easy, but this is what God has called His people to. And He knows the evils and the damages of sexual immorality. It leads to all sorts of troubles, broken marriages, people who feel used, it leads to depression, it's a vicious cycle of never-ending guilt and shame. And this is why Paul makes this point. In this verse, he says that in this matter, no one should wrong, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. Paul, who's speaking from divine inspiration, God speaking through him, knows that sex, when practiced outside the biblical guidelines, leads to wronging and taking advantage of others. Because, and I want you to think about this with me, because when we commit these kinds of sexual sins, looking at someone with lust, breaking our marriage covenant, what are we doing? We're living a life of me-focused. 
where I'm using other people for my own desires and sexual gratification. And God never intended his people to be treated, to treat one another in this way. Each of us, all mankind was created to bear the image of God. That means we have worth and value that we were created to know and be known by God. We were not created for the purpose of maximizing our own pleasure and minimizing pain. We were created to love God and to love others, to treat all mankind with dignity and respect. But when we give in to our lust and our desires, we take advantage of other people. We use them for our pleasure. Whether we say that or not, that's what we're doing. And God says, this is wrong. I created you not to be used and not even to use other people. I created you to love. And so Paul goes on in his instruction. He says this, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 9. Now about your love for one another. We do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Here, Paul addresses this idea of love and service as areas in which the church in Thessalonica needs to continue to walk and excel in. See, love in the New Testament is consistently defined not as some abstract feeling, but rather as action. Paul even alludes to this when he says, you do love all the churches. It's an action, something they're doing. Now, yes, they had a general feeling of like and love for others, but their love was expressed in tangible ways. And this only makes sense to us, right? Because we know the greatest commandment to be to love God and to love other people. See, this command of love is the supreme obligation that we as Christians have. And Paul urges the church who's already loving others to abound in it still more and more and more. That they would continue to grow in their love for others. Matter of fact, the Apostle John, in his letter, writes that love is the mark of a true Christ follower. He says, 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. And then catch this, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The mark of a true Christ follower is someone who loves. Now, this teaching is likely not new to us, right? Especially if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard this all of your life. But that's the point. It's, it's not a new command that he's giving us. It's something we've already heard, maybe even something we're already doing. But Paul says to continue in it, to be faithful in loving one another, to excel in it more and more. And then Paul ends his teaching in this area and says that we should live a quiet and honest life. Verses 11 and 12. And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind to your own business, work with your hands, just as we've told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anyone. The idea here is that Christians' lives should be characterized by behaviors that don't cause conflict and disturbances, that we're not rebel rousers, but rather that we live at peace with all men. That when, we, that when others look at us and they think to themselves, wow, that, that person's not trying to make a spectacle out of themselves. They're not trying to make some trouble and cause trouble here. They're just simply living their life and claiming to do it for Jesus. And then when it says that we should mind to our own business, this means that we shouldn't meddle in other people's affairs. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't care for other people or be concerned about other people. The Bible actually commands this. But you know what he's talking about here. 
this malicious gossiping, this just wanting to lean in, peek through the blinds to see what the neighbors are doing, right? Constantly meddling in other people's businesses. He says, avoid this. Mind to your own business. Be concerned with your own affairs. And then he says to work hard with your hands. Now, this doesn't mean that as Christians, all of us, our occupation should be that of manual labor. He's not making that point at all. No, he's just simply saying that every area of our life, including our work, should be brought under the rule and reign of Christ. And so, it means that we be honest and reliable workers, that even in our work, we're not trying to create trouble. We show up, we do our job, we don't make a fuss. We're honest and reliable. We make an honest income. And see, this is what the Christian movement is. It's not people who come in and invade a place only to cause trouble and bring about disorder. No, it's rather a people who've been born again, a people who you can trust, who are honest and diligent, hardworking, people who live for Christ. And the idea is that when other people begin to notice these deeds, these actions, these behaviors... They begin to have respect for us, and slowly they begin to respect the one we claim to confess and follow, Jesus himself. See, Paul's teaching this morning, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty practical advice, ways that we could live out our faith, where we can be faithful in. It's areas where we can begin to focus on and excel in more and more, things we need to be faithful in. See, what Paul's doing here is he's saying, now that you've received the gospel, Now that you've heard the good news, this is how you should live. You should continue to walk and live in order to please God, to excel in it more and more, to be faithful to the end, to step up to the line, to look at the target, to pull back the bow, to aim and to release the arrow. Over and over again, take every thought, step, word, action, deed, everything as an opportunity to glorify God to continue to walk and to please him. The Apostle Paul writes in the letter to the Romans, uh, letter to Rome in Romans in chapter 3, he says this, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I've bolded that word sin here because the word as it appears in Romans 3.23 is actually an archery term and it means to miss the mark, to error. And that's exactly what sin is. Sin is missing the mark of God's perfect law, his standard, and his rule. But in archery, when you miss the mark, it's usually accidental, a misfire. You you accidentally uh, move the bow slight when you released the arrow. But when we sin, it's not an accidental missing of the mark. It's an intentional, knowing that the target's here, but shooting entirely in a different direction. And the Bible's utterly clear in this regard. Everyone, all have missed the mark. We just don't measure up to God's perfect standard. We have sinned and erred. But this is the gospel. Just if all have sinned and missed the mark, anyone who puts their faith in Christ is, and Paul goes on to say, justified freely by his grace through the redemption which came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in him. 
what this means here is that anyone who puts their faith in this message, in the gospel, that although we've missed the mark entirely, the all-knowing and all-holy judge, God himself, looks us, the wicked and vile and wretched sinner, square in the eye and justifies us, declares us righteous, acquits us, pardons us, sets us free in Christ. No penalty for you. See, because Christ hit the mark perfectly every single time, he went to the cross and suffered the equivalent of eternity in hell for all the human race. Because he met the perfect standard and law of God. Because he never erred or fell short or missed the mark in any way. His righteousness, his perfect obedience is imputed to our account. We who were once guilty and deserving of the full wrath of God are now declared to be righteous and set free to live free. See, this, that right there is the message of the gospel. That is the good news. Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us so that you and I, who are full of sin, might be declared righteous, might be forgiven and set free. And the message that the church in Thessalonica responded to is that very message and it's the same message that many of you in this room have already responded to. It's what we put our faith in. And because we're forgiven, because this is now our reality, now that we've been set apart to, to live for God, a life that honors and pleases Him, it is our obligation that we must continue to excel still more and more of being faithful to Him walking and living a life that pleases God, to stand up to the line, to look at the target, to pull back the bow, to aim at the target, and to release the arrow over and over again, resisting temptation, loving and serving others, and leading a quiet and honest life, all to God's glory. And the beautiful thing is that God doesn't leave us alone to do this kind of work. He's given His Spirit to those who surrender their lives to Him, and the Spirit's purpose in our lives is to give us the power to live for God, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, to lay aside our own passions and desires instead, to pursue holiness and love and to go on walking and pleasing God. That's the gospel. Christ has set us free to live free. And in the meantime, while we await His glorious return, we remain faithful. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for your grace, for your love and mercy. And we thank you for the beautiful message of the gospel that you have set us free so that we can live free. But God, I pray that as we wait the return of your glorious son, Jesus, from on high, that we would be faithful to the end, that we would continue to walk and to live a life that pleases you. God, fill us with your spirit to give us the power to resist temptations and then to live for you. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen.